to episode 71 of the Winning Six podcast, official podcast of BehindTheBookPass.com. I'm your host, Sites Editor-in-Chief, Adam McGee. And as always, joining me this week, we have Jordan Tresky. Hello, Jordan. Hello. It's good to be somewhat back to normal, I guess, this week. After two marathon weeks, appropriately enough, with the Olympics going on. Um, we ran through every team in the East, every team in the West, made our way too early projections that Jordan already regrets. Mm-hmm. And it's just really time for us to get back to talking more book specific or at least semi related to the books <laughs> content. And that's what we're going to do this week. We've got However long this goes on for, which as you'll you'll know if you're a regular listener, can vary significantly. Um, but however long it goes on for, it's gonna be lots of books talk for you. Let's get down to it with the one book who is currently in Rio de Janeiro at the 2016 Olympic Games, and that would be Australia's Matthew Delavadova. Jordan, who has yet to change his Twitter avatar to a picture of him doing the Matthew Delavadova pose. Any update on that, Jordan? Uh, no. <laughs> Remember, that's hashtag Delhi picture now um, to get Jordan to just get his act together on that one, really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but back to Delhi himself he has had an incredibly impressive Olympic game so far he has been among the most impressive players in the tournament very comfortably he's been really efficient he's shot the ball well he's passed well and his team have I want to say probably impressed more than anyone else. I was going to say as much as anyone not named the US, but the Australians have probably played better, all things considered. So, first off, how much fun has it been? We talked for so long that if we were going to watch a books Olympian, it would be Yanis, but obviously he fell short. Delhi arrives in, and off he goes to the Olympics. How much fun has it been to watch a book and specifically Delhi at the Olympic Games so far? It's been a lot of fun. I, I've i enjoyed it. He, you know, we pin our hopes to Giannis, and, we, and then all of a sudden this 
man on a white horse, or in this case, a white kangaroo, st strolls up and uh, takes our <laughs> our Bucks fandom attention. I that I lost steam there. Um, no, uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I, Australia has been a really fun team to watch. Obviously, seeing they have NBA players that you watched before. Obviously, Bogut. We're very familiar with Bogut, but even seeing like Joe Ingles, uh, Patty Mills, um, Delvadova. I'm forgetting. There's another. Isn't there another NBA person? Why am I forgetting? Um. No? Yeah, Aaron Baines. Aaron Baines. Well. Whoa, that's a, that's a. I wouldn't say. I, let's just no, 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 no. I'm not saying that he's not an NBA player. I'm just saying I wouldn't particularly describe Aaron Baines as fun. <laughs> he has a very... Oh, I mean, he's fun in a... Well, I find him fun. He's my kind of fun player. As in he he might he yeah. might sort of start a fight. And That's true. He, he's just... I don't know. He's very... He's my, he's my kind of player. I like him. He's Aaron very enforcer-like. Yeah. And obviously, with his hairstyle. The, hair, the hair is, I mean... He's like it's, a samurai, kind of. Very samurai-ish. Not so much. If that's what he's trying for, he's falling short. It's the hair is incredible, <laughs> but I mean, I like Aaron Baines the player. I just have to say, I should preface this because one of my not to toot my own horn here. No, I oh, here, here he goes. But whatever tweeting during a Bucks Pistons game, and I believe is actually a game that the Bucks like won pretty handily. But I said going from Andre Drummond to Aaron Baines is like going from a nice pair of Nikes to wearing Skechers. So if that doesn't feel you how I how I'm not a big fan of Aaron Baines, that's probably yes. But anyway, uh, Australia in general has been a lot of fun to watch. The fans, I'm a fan of the fans, but particularly with uh, Del Vadova, I've I mean, it's hard not to be impressed by what he's been doing. Uh, he's, I would just say he, I don't know how to describe what's, I don't think anything's really that different. Obviously, he has a bigger role within the team he's starting. I mean, maybe that goes when he comes to the Bucks when the season starts, I don't know. But we're seeing him in a bigger role with the team, obviously. Uh, you know, play next to Petty Mills, but I just feel like uh, I don't know. It's not like the the we've seen some pesty moments. You know, kind of being the uh, irritants, as we have often said about Delvadova. But I, it's what's taken the story about this has been just how well he's played. Like you said, he's shot the ball well. He's passed and he's had double digit assists in a lot of games. I want to say three. Four, maybe? Three, trees. Three. Well, I'll give the specifics of the stats, just in case anyone hasn't been keeping up to, to date with uh, these play in Rio so far. So, first of all, he leads the tournament in assists per game. 8.6 assists per game. Also worth noting to tie in with that, he has an assisted turnover ratio of 8.6 to 1, uh, which is... <laughs> Completely incredible. It's almost as assists per game. 
<laughs> it's exactly his assist. Oh, yeah, it's exactly. That's right, yeah. Exactly his assist per game. So for the whole tournament, that's 43 assists to five turnovers, uh, which is mind-blowingly good. He has shot 64.3% from the field with 50% on his three-point attempts, 80% from the free-throw line, averaging 9.4 points per game, although that did take a hit in his last game where he only played eight minutes in total. So really, he's more... He's probably, if he played his regular minutes in that, he'd be averaging a double-double through the five games. He's just been really really good one steal per game he's comfortably one of the most efficient players in the tournament has picked teams apart with his passing and that's not to say he he hasn't been demonstrating say the passing abilities that ricky rubio or milos tedesic have it's more that his awareness it's not flashy passing but if a defender has fallen asleep for even a split second Delhi has been throwing up an alley-oop pass above their head, um, sort of treading the needle f- with a, a pass that sets open, sets up a, an open guy who's made a great cut to the rim. He's just been really, really good. And I think for for anyone who was skeptical about the Bucks' decision to sign him, you can already see on Twitter, you can see a lot of Bucks fans who have sort of gradually been won over. Although it's not necessarily something to go completely crazy over. I'm not a fan of when people say, oh, it's just FIBA or it's just the Olympics. The, the quality of competition isn't that good because I, I just don't think that's all that true. Mm-hmm. And particularly, I mean, okay, Venezuela weren't that great. China weren't that great. Well, if that's your issue with Delhi, I mean, in total between those games, he scored nine points that nine assists. So that's not where his numbers are coming from. You're looking at 11 points, 11 assists against the States, 23 and 13 against Serbia, four and 10 against France. He's been doing against the really good teams and two of those teams anyway in, in USA and France are basically all NBA caliber starting lineups. I mean, Nando DiColo technically isn't in the NBA, although he could have come back over this year, but he's a former NBA player, EuroLeague MVP. If you're saying that's not quality competition, I don't know what you're looking for. We talked, mm-hmm. we had a medal question weeks back about if the books were in the Olympics, would they medal? And we said no. I mean, we didn't think they'd be better than France or Spain. I'm not so sure. Could we really see them beating Croatia or Argentina? I mean, they could beat them, definitely, on their game. They could probably beat any team in the competition. But you wouldn't say it's a lock. So for anyone who wants to knock the quality of FIBA, I think you've got to put it in perspective how many of these teams would be able to compete and go up against quality NBA opposition. Overall, how far do you think Australia can go in the competition? And obviously with Delhi as a driving factor as part of their team, what do you see as realistic for them? At the moment, they're, they are true to the knockout rounds. They're waiting to find out their opponent. 
And there's one game still being played in Group B, and that is between Croatia and Lithuania. And as it stands, the Boomers will play the third place team, which will be one of Croatia, Lithuania, or Brazil. By the time you're listening to this, you'll know, but we don't right now. How far do you see them going? That's a good question. Um, I I think a week ago, or less than a week ago, maybe actually probably after the U.S. game, to be honest, I would have said they would be meeting the U.S. in the gold medal game. I don't know if that's if I'm feeling that as strong about that. Uh, Spain's really up there played in the last few games against two games, but they're starting looking starting to look like the team that many thought that they would be right off the gates or right out of the gates. Um, Lithuania is a tough one. France is kind of. In theory, they are competitive, and they obviously gave USA a very good game. Um, They've had a bad tournament, though. That was more reflection yeah. on, on the U.S. than it was on the French, if it. Yeah. And Serbia's, I mean, they've, they probably have, a, well, they would be tied with Spain with the worst rec- record that goes through. But they're still sneaky. Obviously, they have very quality players, too. I would, I would not. You see, you see them getting to the semifinals, but it sounds with the. Yes, I, I think that I think that's unless unless if an injury happens to any of their starters, I, I I think they at least get to the semifinals. I mean, it's not a starter, but Cameron Bairstow has supposedly fractured his arm, which it it does hurt their depth. Yeah. Um, but they've proven to be deeper, I think, than anyone expected. The likes of, I have come full circle on David Anderson. David Anderson is now a hero of mine. I'd, I'd be open for any team paying David Anderson any amount of money. There was, a, well, guess what? There's already a, I want to say there was a report after either the U.S. game or the second to last game, I'm blanking who they played. Was it Venezuela? Uh, China was the second last one. Venezuela was the last one. China. Um, China was his big game. Yeah. And there was reports that NBA teams were interested in him, despite already signing a new deal with Melbourne United, I want to say. So I want to say Melbourne United is the soccer team in Melbourne. But... Well, I'm not an expert. <laughs> yeah, Melbourne, but we'll, we'll have people listening who Divided, are, so. I guess. Ugh. You're, I actually, I take it back. You're right. It is Melbourne United. Okay. <laughs> I apologize. Um, Score one for the Greeks. Like, I mean, if the books are looking at 36-year-olds <laughs> shooting forwards, I mean, <laughs> why not? Why not David Anderson? He's, let's, he's just have, let's just have Steve Novak grow out his hair and grow a, a kind of thin goatee. A Jaeger goatee. I like a, a Muppet villain goatee. Yeah. <laughs> or an evil Abed type uh, felt goatee. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be, I mean, that's a 
make a segue. That would make Steve Novak to be so much more interesting. The <laughs> I've just looked at the teams linked to David Anderson, and now for his own good, I sort of want him to stay in Melbourne or Houston, New Orleans, Toronto. Okay, that would be good for him. But yeah, I mean, he played. He balled out against China. I mean, that, that's a possibility for him to get paid. If ever there's a, a a nation to have your best game against, if you want a big payday, and but China, um, I think I think I still think Australia are the best team, as in group that plays like a team in this competition, yes. because that is the biggest problem the US have. They don't look in any way coherent. They are not a team, not like U.S. teams have been in the past. If not for Carmelo Anthony, they could have been in worlds of trouble in that qualifying group. Amelo has been insane. I, Clay Thompson has not been good. Kevin Durant has not been good. Kyrie Irving has been good offensively, but really has not been so good on the other end. I don't see anyone bar the U.S. beating Australia. And I wouldn't see it as a clear-cut thing if they were to meet again. I mean, they're whoever they're going to play from now on, if they play Brazil or Croatia-Lithuania, that's a tough game. From there, you're probably looking at who would be on the other side. Spain. It'd be Spain against whoever was third. So you'd be playing the winner of Spain or France. That's a tough game. And then the final, you'd be coming back to obviously the US or if there was an upset along the way, maybe Argentina, something like that. Like no matter what combination of results you get, they'd have three tough games left. I don't see any reason why they won't win two and crazier things have happened than them winning three. I don't know. It's it's really wide open. Once the once we get into the quarterfinals, which I believe start on Wednesday. It's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be some really good games. And there already has been, if you look at yeah. like Spain-Argentina, Brazil-Argentina. Yeah. Um, although it wasn't as close as some of the others in the end, I do feel like the US and Australia was maybe the best of those close games. Yeah. Just to me, it felt like the. it was the one that was really the closest and and the US weren't quite as bad in that game as they have been some of the others yeah um, I would agree with that it's going to be interesting as, as it advances this is something we talked about last year with Yanis when he was playing in Eurobasket but Delhi has the experience obviously playing in the finals winning a championship with the Cavs but so much has been talked about Delhi having a bad finals. Well, knockout rounds of an Olympic tournament is pretty high pressure. It's more than just a city on your shoulders. It's your country. It's yeah. It's an awful lot of people you're going to have to carry along with you. So he's going to be playing under big pressure with much bigger responsibility. And we'll get a good idea of how he can cope in that sort of situation. Which, even if it doesn't become relevant ever if not in a hurry even for the books, it's always good to see how a guy does in that environment. One thing I found interesting, 
the way Delhi has meshed with Andrew Bogut, and I'm not talking specifically about Bogut catching alley oops from anything, but Bogut's passing. Um, we spent so much talking about Delhi with LeBron, now Delhi with Giannis. I think you see with Bogut, it doesn't have to necessarily be a point forward. How we invest in this, oh, well, he's played great with a point forward. I think if you give him someone else who's just a really skilled and intelligent passer who can relieve some, if not a lot, of the pressure around them, that benefits him a lot. And the reason I think that's interesting is if it is something bigger than him playing well alongside point forwards, if it's just he plays well in teams where he's surrounded by other capable passers, that makes the fit even better for the books. Mm-hmm. Because if he can play alongside Yanis and help to complement and get the best out of him, while also working with Chris Middleton and Jabari Parker and seeing what that brings to it, I just I feel like that's something I wasn't necessarily prepared for that I've noticed over his last few games. And he's, he's so comfortable off the ball without always having to be the shooter. The one thing I will say is his defense hasn't been great in this tournament. Um, his effort has been there, which I suppose is very much what's advertised. But he hasn't exactly been a lockdown defender. He is a little on the small side, um, if not in height, in terms of his frame. So something that... It's not ideal for the books, but that I have noticed is he can get caught behind screens. It's not the easiest for him to fight his way through screens. And when you look at how many three-pointers the books gave up last year, that is not ideal. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that I don't feel like will be fixed overnight. I think in sort of defending a half-court set, he'll be really good and he should help the books dramatically in that sort of setting. But in sort of fluid, fast-moving offense, a good screen from a big, and you could have all sorts of space created, which, as we know from most of the rest of the book's team, there will already be spaces. So that becomes a very big gaping hole in that sort of scenario. Is there anything else you've taken that maybe you didn't know before or just now that you're watching him through the eyes of he's going to be a book very soon. Is there anything you've picked up on that's different or that you really feel is going to benefit or even hurt the books this season? Um, I think you, I mean, you pretty much, you know, we're spot on by everything. Um, the, uh, to go back to kind of his connection with Bogut, um, obviously, you know, biggest uh, kind of, takeaway i guess in the er- early part of their australia's run was you know just the endless lobs and you know you know uh alley-oops and all that stuff and i was thinking about this and i was kind of you know listening to um guys over at brew group they're locked on bucks and they were talking about delhi's performance uh throughout the olympics too and i was thinking like seeing it wasn't just you know these cuts or anything like that it would just be like you know regular pick and rolls and um, uh, it just got me to think, like, you know, Del Vadova has already, you know, had a solid – I mean, he had really, you know, 
excellent stats being pick and rolls. I'm just thinking, like, well, the Bucks have a really good pick and roll big in Miles Plumley. I mean, we we it's easy to talk about like his fit next to like Giannis, especially you know Giannis having the ball in his hands. Jabari, you know, you know, kind of slinking off baseline cuts, stuff like that. Like that obviously comes to mind. Milton, you know, just the kind of ever, you know, very useful all around kind of guy. But I was thinking like, even say if it's, you know, second units or it's, you know, second quarter, 10 minutes in the, or, you know, two minutes let, or uh, two minutes into the second quarter, and they throw out like Plumley and Delvadova to round out the lineup on the court. That could work too. Like I, I, I don't know. I'm not saying that his his lobbing ability is you know set in stone because a lot of it has been you know teams not really pressuring him, and if you pressure him, he's not the guy that's going to blow by guys and all that stuff. But that's cer- certainly something that will you know I think uh, help the Bucks right away if it's. If it's truly truly there, and you know they just need points and stuff like that, I think to have that you know as a point guard, I think that's huge for his fit next to Plum. Yeah, and I guess for the books, even in that that context, the one thing I'd say about the likes of the alley oops and Olympic play, rather than disparaging Phoebe play, which most people tend to do. Something like that, I think, where you'd say you won't see quite the incredible volume of alley-oops that he's thrown at the Olympics so far will come from the fact that teams have a great opportunity to game plan for what they're coming up against in the NBA. Because you've got, on a near nightly basis, tape coming in of how this team plays, what sort of plays they like to run. As opposed to when you go to the Olympics, when you can say, okay, I know Matthew Davidova does this and he's good at this. But really, you're looking at a group of players who come together a few times a year. And that's if even, because a lot of the time, sort of big name players, NBA players, don't necessarily play a part in internationals until it's the likes of the Olympics or the World Championship or European Championship, whatever. I think it's interesting to think of how he'd work with the bigs because I think he can fit with all three. Yeah. Um, Monroe, if we're talking, I don't think Monroe is a passer on Andrew Bogut's level, but he's a good passer. I don't see why there couldn't be some similar action between the two of them. Um, I'm not sure if Monroe catches alley-oops. I don't think I've ever seen that. That's a bit of a struggle for him to get I want to say there was only like one one dunk that comes to mind for Monroe last year. Uh, Yeah. It sounds about right. I mean, (laughs) if Andrew Bogut can do it, I don't know why why Craig Monroe shouldn't be able to, but there we are. I mean, genetics and things like that. Um. But, yeah, I see how he could work with Monroe in terms of that's someone if it's a second unit and if it is a rare time where Giannis and Middleton are off the court, which is rare and not a very good idea for the books. Mm. Um, perhaps with, say, Delhi and Monroe and if they have Toledovic there as a shooter, maybe Brogdon or Vaughn, you know, there could be a lineup there that works. 
there could be something that can survive without those sort of players and that was something the books really didn't have last year was different options in terms of lineups if they could have a second unit that would occasionally be able to sort of do some things on their own i mean your second unit doesn't have to be complete to the point where you go oh they're really good defensively they're really good offensively for your second unit if you got a group who could be really good at one of those two things you probably accept it for the small bursts that you'd run a full second unit out there together if they just happen to be really effective offensively you might deal with it if they're great defensively that works too like the second unit doesn't have to be perfect but if they can do one thing really well that they can keep the game tight or maybe pull away if they get hot that's a big bonus when the guys who you're really looking to win the game for you are taking a, a short rest just to correct myself earlier when i said i saw teams interested in david anderson they were the teams he's previously played for ah so i i just misread that i was reading while podcasting which is not safe it's not advised anyone um in the time since i have noticed something that just broke my heart a little bit that david anderson was in fact drafted by the atlanta hawks who traded his rights for milwaukee books legend cash considerations oh outside of delhi and australia who have been your favorite players in the tournament so far or who has impressed you the most oh i feel like this is a lot of this is gonna be unoriginal uh but to oh i'm gonna struggle with this day like if i to tia does yeah you can i think that's maybe putting some syllables that aren't there in but I, I would say to, to Dosich, but Dosich. I, I have heard commentators, which once again, oh, yeah. this is this is an old favorite of ours, um, but I have heard commentators refer to him as Tia Dosich, which I don't know where that extra O sound at the start is coming from. But yeah, Serbia's point guard is who we're talking <laughs> about, for those of you who are not great with pronunciations. Yeah, uh, obviously uh you first highlight that comes to mind the crazy another pass like how do you even thread not even thread the needle just how do you even know if you uh, <laughs> there was a shooter there i, I want to say it was bogdan bogdanovich um he's been really good for serbia uh miroslav i have to pay some respect to one of my favorite bucks of all time miroslav i'm not joking about that I, sincerely love the man he he has been great i don't want to we've got a mailbag question about him so i don't want to go too big into him now but specifically this has been fun from a books (laughs) actually maybe fun is the wrong word because you have this tournament where at whatever age bogut is now bogut is lighting up the tournament like that, that dunk he had, okay, the defense was terrible from the French, 
but that donkey hat where basically he just gets the ball and it's like he's running in for a touchdown he's just gone yeah. and hammers the dunk home as he's done so many times he looks like he's got young legs under him which considering he's not very healthy at the moment I think that probably speaks volumes just of how much Bogut cares about representing his country. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's been fun, as you said, Miroslav Radulica. Then there's another former book. He's been doing things. Jordan looks confused, but... Why am I forgetting? You had a tweet about this yesterday, Jordan. What? I'm having a brain meltdown. To remind Jordan, there's a certain book that Jordan feels like. Oh my god, yeah, okay. If you, if you have to put <laughs> some music, a nice beat over his name, you'd have a hit on your hands. Who are you talking about, Jordan? Uh, well, I. Okay, this is. You know, it's funny is that when I was looking at that video it's a pronunciation video they just by the way those videos just make me laugh i don't know why it's not it's probably my own weird sensibility but anyway i always thought it was yi zhen li that's how i would always say his name but it's yi zhan lan or yi uh, i'm gonna screw that up yi zhan lenin uh, no. Yee uh, Lin. The no need yeah. for John Lennon posts. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but yeah. Uh, I I don't know if you, well, obviously they got knocked out. So they haven't. Yeah, they were, I want to say they were last in that group. Yeah. Yeah, because. Five, they finished on five points. Venezuela had six. Yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah. I wouldn't say he was. Well, he was fine in the games that I saw. But he had yeah. like twenty six points against Australia. Now that's, I think that's the only game I saw. I watched a little bit of USA China, but then I turned it off because who wants to? Who wants to see that? Um, but when I was on Delhi duty, um, Delhi duty, he was he was really good. It was weird and. Impressive at the same time. I like Croatia a lot. I don't think we've seen the best of Croatia at this tournament. But they really impressed me, particularly how they beat Giannis and Greece in qualifying. Mm-hmm. And I think we could we could have the the official Dario Saric coming out party if they if they can keep going on for a little while longer. Obviously, he had that game-winning block, which was very close to that. But I think he could have some big moments if they keep going in the tournament and they get somewhere close to their best. Mm, I'm not so sure. Uh, it seems like Bojan Bogdanovic is kind of... Oh, big. I mean, he's he's the star of that team, of that national team. He yeah. is like... I mean, if you just watched international basketball, which I don't know who this person is, but if they just watched international basketball and they decided they were going to follow the NBA next year, you'd have a really hyperinflated opinion of the Brooklyn Nets. Yeah. Erbo, yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
he's just he's more athletic than he looks i like him a lot but with the nets it's just not the same player someone else who i guess wound back the years a little bit is argentina's andres nocioni how much have you liked watching the old argentinians First off, anyone, I, if anyone hasn't read the Zach Lowe piece on um, Manu Ginobili and I guess the likes of Nocioni and Luis Scola um, sort of heavily featured in it, go and do that now. Pause the podcast, allow it, and go, listen, and go read that because it's an incredible piece. Mm. But yeah, not to cut you off, how much fun has it been? I've enjoyed. Actually, I actually probably would say outside of Australia, U.S., maybe France. Now that I'm thinking about it more, I, I just discount that. But I have watched a lot of Argentina, and I really enjoyed it. Obviously, the Brazil Argentina was incredible, but it was also like it just felt like by the like the second overtime, they just everyone just looked so tired. Um, outside of uh, what's his name, Compazzo, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Or no, no. Oh, I'm, I'm terrible with these names. It is Compazzo, is it not? Comprazo, I think. Isn't it that now? <laughs> Isn't it that now? Did it change? Yeah, it changed uh, mid podcast. <laughs> Compazzo, yeah. Oh, there's no R. Compazzo. Composite, okay. I don't know why. Anyway, I've enjoyed Argentina. Banu's played very well. Nocioni obviously won out of his mind during the Brazil game. Luis Scola's done his Luis Scola things, like pump, like pump fake a lot and move. <laughs> I don't know. He's, I find him enjoyable to watch, even though he's not athletic or a, he's a shell of himself, I guess. But yeah. I've enjoyed Argentina. They're sort of the they're the wily old vets of the competition, and I don't know. I've I wouldn't want to play them. That's all I'd say. No, you're not. You're not going to get an easy game against them. Um, definitely going to be one of the tougher opponents you could have in the competition. Just generally. You touched on there the Argentinian players looking, and the Brazilians, both teams being incredibly tired in that double overtime game. And part of that, I guess anyone who's vaguely familiar with FIBA play will say, oh, but quarters are 10 minutes long. Why would they be, why would they be tired? The key difference is that timeouts are really not that much of a feature. They are few and far between i'm not sure of the actual exact numbers on them but the flow of the fever game is really really nice yes what are what are your feelings on fever basketball as a spectacle as opposed to nba basketball hmm well i would say i think the the pace of the NBA game in general has 
become a lot more enjoyable. Obviously, teams play at a faster pace, you know, teams like the Warriors and teams that try to copy <laughs> the Warriors in recent years doing that. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't say it's – there is a difference, but it, it's definitely not as drastic as it once was in my mind. Um, but not having timeouts – I will say, though, the one thing that bothers – uh, and this is probably the only like real big flaw, even though it's not, it's not really that much of a flaw, is that you can, just teams just exercising fouls like out of nowhere. Te- like players will just like you know r- run up to a guy if they're you know going on a fast break. Obviously, it's strategic all that, but that I feel like there is a penalty against that in the NBA, even though it does bring in clear path fouls, replays, all that stuff all that nonsense that Dre gains. I feel like that is toned, really toned down in NBA games. But other than that, I would say, I mean, the fact that you can watch a game and it goes at most like two hours. At uh, most, or, like an hour 45 seems. To yeah, be. that's the general. I mean, that's, that's really nice. And it's really entertaining too. Like, even though there's eight minutes chopped off, games are still being played to like what was the score of the US France game like 100 they both 197 wasn't it yeah something like that yeah these are still really high scoring games even though that might be just a reflection of how that game was being played but still I, I high don't scoring think games so games, though so. I think when you get good teams I know you're saying the pace is maybe slower than it used to be but I still, I still feel it's a lot faster and that's because the extra timeouts and the role of the coach in the NBA it's Coach is too important in the NBA. It makes games too deliberate. Every single move going up and down the floor is orchestrated by the coach. And it's only in sort of frantic last-minute situations that you get to see players completely take control. Obviously, there's a few exceptions to that, and that's if you're LeBron James or if you're Steph Curry. There are probably times where he'll be allowed to go and do things a little bit more on the fly. But... I feel like that's a difference because the coaches just don't get to sit down and communicate with their teams quite as often. There is more watching the players go and play it out, and that leads to some really exciting play because the ball moves more. Yeah. Just because there isn't this sort of planned out route to the basket, it actually encourages more ball movement because you have to move it to try and find an opening. It also leads to, like, the defense gets criticized. It's harder to defend when it's not, like, offense versus or, like offense versus defense, like the NFL, which is what happens late in an NBA game when it's timeout, 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 and you're, you're switching guys in and out. When mm. it's in the flow of games and you're sort of out of breath, gassed from running up and down at a high pace, if... In with a high intensity game, if that's the way the tempo is taking things, there's going to be more sort of lapses of concentration. And if you're really purist and you look at that, you say, okay, well, that defense is terrible. I don't like that. But all around, I mean, it makes for more entertainment, I feel, watching. Like when you watch Australia, for example, some of the work they've done in terms of with cuts and just opposing defenses happened happened with the US as well um just falling asleep entirely 
but through really nice passing through really nice movement not just of the ball but of bodies they're creating these great opportunities and just these really nice fluid moves it's just there's a flow to all of of, of the play um on the officiating okay i see your point on the fouls i nearly trade that off though for yeah. the amount of stuff that gets let go the refs let them play yeah maybe part of that is it's just the olympics but i've seen it in lots of other fiba games they will let it get physical there's not gonna be whistles every two seconds for a minor touch here or there they let the teams play and once again that's a big factor along with timeouts you don't disrupt the game you get to see it sort of come to a more natural outcome and that is fun in itself there are certain things obviously that wouldn't work the short and three-point line the nba would be chaos uh, <laughs> i don't think anyone would take twos anymore um everyone would be making trees but i don't think anyone would take twos i like live ball in the rim yes i i think goaltending is one of the stranger rules the, the way that that can work in the nba and there are times where it's really there to play for you. You can't touch it. It's about to come off the rim, but you can't touch it. It's just a live ball on the rim is fun. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and that is a rule that they have in the D-League, by the way. Yeah, that is true. I want to say that was two years ago, was it, that they introduced that in the D-League? It might have been right after the later or last FIBA championships, I want to say. So, yeah. Two, two years ago, ago yeah. Okay, so um, you'd like to think that's down there because eventually it will make its way up, but we'll see. But yeah, I guess in all of this overall, you don't really, I don't look for the Olympics to watch basketball. It's not necessarily my first choice of thing to watch because, let's face it, I watch a lot of basketball. I'll be watching a lot of basketball in the coming months. But the games have been great quality i think has been very good and it will get better now that the likes of nigeria venezuela china now that they're all gone so two thumbs up for olympic basketball moving on we'll knuckle right back in on the most minute details of the books and what the books are doing at the moment first of all we'll start with something that broke today monday as jordan and i record this the books have hired craig robinson as vice president of player and organizational development i'll say it so jordan can't make the bad joke that you've all heard already it is not craig robinson from the office um this instead is former oregon state coach um brother-in-law of barack obama brother of michelle obama uh pretty wide and varied past and history of what craig robinson has done throughout his career I'm not quite sure how to feel about this hire in any way yet, in a typical way of a lot of sort of these kind of moves. It won't be until further down the line that we'll see just how involved he is in 
day to day. I have a feeling VP of player and organizational development. That could be a role that becomes pretty important, particularly as the D League team comes closer on the horizon. You have to build a D League team. Like obviously you'll have your more traditional player development too, but there was probably a more pressing need for the books to get someone to look at the bigger picture. And I think VP of player and organizational development sort of leads me to believe there could be something a little bit bigger and maybe a little bit wider, more further ranging about what Craig Robinson's responsibilities could be with the books. Can you see that? Am I reading way too much into it? That's that's a given, but <laughs> um, I think it's a little bit really much too in, into it and a little bit like hopeful, or hopefully that it, it you know when the daily team comes to fruition, uh, you'd hope that he that is one of his primary. Assignments, I guess. So you're saying I'm, I'm having, having too much trust in the books is basically what you're saying there. Well, no, I'm not saying too much trust. It sounds a little bit like that. I'm just saying we 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 don't know. Oh well, the official books.com <laughs> press release. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was from Wes Edens. It was player development is instrumental to the success of our players on the court and our valuable impact in the community. We strive to equip every member of our organization with the tools they need to find personal success beyond basketball. As we continue to build a world-class franchise, we're thrilled to have someone with Craig's experience and character join our team and help our players reach their full potential on and off the court. The press release also noted that Robinson will oversee the development and implementation of programs that support the professional and personal growth of players through education mentorship business and community efforts that align with the missions and goals of the books organization this is so broad because we have the mention of player development on the court which gives you the impression of craig robinson in it in sweats down on the court working with guys on their handle on their jump shot and then you have this whole idea of what sounds like working with guys on We'll say if they have foundations or at sort of books events and possibly in how they manage their their finances. A lot of it's a lot here. It's just it's really this is what I mean by I don't know what the job is until we find out further down the line. And it could be something that we rarely, if ever, hear his name, but he could still do a lot of very important work behind the scenes. Um, but just generally when you hear VP of player development, that gives you one idea. There's so much here in terms of organizational side of things that it's hard to really know what Craig Robinson is going to be doing from an outside perspective. When the fans say, what does this mean for the team? That one feels a little hard to put my finger on right now. Ty wrote a piece about this today. Ty Windish, managing editor at the site. Um, very rare win and six guest. I believe he'll be making a comeback soon, but don't hold me to that. Ty wrote a piece about this today, and 
in it he included a quote from uh, Chuck Klosterman formerly of Grantland a piece he wrote for Esquire a few years ago I just want to read out that quote just to just to give some context to this because it's really interesting um, so bear with me the tall bald man stands at mid-court and watches his squad run through the, the reverse phase of its half-court offense. It's repetitive and draconian. The bald man is sarcastic, but not playful. He accuses his players of being con artists and makes them run penalty sprints. Whenever he addresses anyone on the roster, he refers to him only by jersey number. He tells a point guard to sit the F down. Because said point guard is demoralizing practice. When a small forward cuts to the wrong space on the floor and grows confused, the bald man asks, so you're dumb enough to run over there, but you're too dumb to go back to where you came from. One of the be better players keeps offering excuses as to why he made the same mistakes two times in a row. This is a wrong diplomatic tack. If I hadn't made you run so much already, the bald man responds, I'd make you run more because you are too stupid to shut your effing mouth. We all love you here. We love guys who can make shots, but shut your effing mouth. Well, um, in the context of what we're hearing this role is, I think that sort of quote becomes even more interesting. Because it seems like there's almost some player welfare elements to the job. Like, obviously, as a coach, your role is very differently, and you have to get something different out of the players. But if Robinson wants to be involved in a more hands-on, day-to-day basketball player development capacity, do you think he'd have to alter his approach for the NBA? Um, for, for this group, maybe more specifically, even. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I would, <laughs> I would think so. Uh, is when I first read that, uh, it was a little bit jarring. <laughs> it's hard not to uh, have that feeling after, you know. Uh, you hear the higher this guy, then <laughs> you know one of these see or you know seen closer and write about that in, in his piece and stuff like that. I don't know, uh, but yeah, I would say, and you never know. Maybe it's just one day. All this stuff during it doesn't speak for how he coaches, but certainly not a good uh, reflection on him. I would say as a coach, I feel like that's very. Uh, it's just, I don't know, it doesn't sound very appealing. Uh, when I you think do that. The, the word Klosterman used that is very accurate is draconian. Draconian, yeah, I was just, I don't want to it's, use that. It yeah. is very like how you imagine a coach in the 1960s to go about their business, and even at that, you're not sure if it would fly back then. Yeah, I guess if he is that kind of character. There is an absence of that kind of voice maybe in the front office at the moment. If they're trying to make things a little bit more dynamic in the process, I would certainly do that if that's, <laughs> that is 
Um, which let's be honest, it probably isn't. That's as you said, not just one day, but one specific incident. Um, you can't really make any sweeping assertions on his character based on it. But someone with that kind of element to them, maybe it brings something different to the mix and works well in a decision-making sense. I'm just not sure if it filters right down to the players directly and it's confrontational like that, whether that would be to the benefit of anyone, really. Interesting all the same, though. I mean, the books keep making hires and we can sort of be flippant about it and say they seem to be making up position after position. But at the same time, they're really sort of, they're looking to build a deep sort of front office basketball ops management team. And that really, it goes along with everything the organization and the owners have stated they want to do. They want it to be a first class organization. They want the best facilities, the best people. And it is interesting. They continue to pluck these different figures from different backgrounds with different top processes and in the long run we'll see if it all meshes together nicely or if there's a lot of butting of heads moving on from someone who is officially a part of the books organization sound the alarms it's time for Steve Novak watch. We do this every week, but the ongoing Steve Novak books, Will They, Won't They saga, is still ongoing. I feel like at this stage, we should have camera crews involved following day to day, just to see exactly how things are going down. What's the holdup? <laughs> Steve Novak appeared on uh, 105.7 FM's The Fans, I think it was The Big Show, um, on Friday. And he was asked, obviously, would he be re-signing with the books? Was that still a thing? His response was, we're having good conversations, and right now I think we're just waiting pretty much for some of the medical staff to be back in town for physicals and stuff like that. And then we'll make it official. So we're getting close. There's something, <laughs> something a little bit hilarious about Novak doing his own. I want to call it tour. I want to feel like, oh, I hope this is the first stop. Maybe Novak's whistle stop tour of Wisconsin media as we approach D-Day for his return to the books. Um, waiting for some medical stuff, okay, that's fine. He has been around most of the summer, and the books did do medicals for some other guys, so. But yeah, it does, it sounds close. What can you take from this? What do we read into this? And, Obviously, Novak isn't a surprise. That's, we've been over this so many times. But they still have one roster spot left. At this point, do you feel like 
if they sign Novak soon, he will be it until training camp, and we'll see what happens out of that. Or are they going to look to fill that other roster spot in the meantime? Hmm. I never thought about it that way. Um. Well, obviously, uh, to tackle the first part, what this all means, uh, it means that we're close, close to the prodigal son returning. <laughs> uh, that was returning to near home. To returning to near home, yeah. We've adopted him like our own. Uh, never. Um, I said this to Jordan earlier today. I'm technically as from Milwaukee as Steve Novak. As in, neither of us are actually from Milwaukee, but we choose to do multiple Milwaukee-related things on a daily basis. <laughs> that's it. And that's, I mean, any of you listening, our Australian friends, um... Now I've got some others. I want to say Matt McClanahan, Metastic. I want to say he's from Minnesota. Regular listeners who are also not from Milwaukee or Wisconsin, get involved. Tweet with the hashtag. Hashtag, I'm as local as Novak. Uh, Back to the the prodigal son returning to a place near home, though, Jordan. Yeah. They also say local... uh, Local references will get you local worth, so uh, <laughs> that just makes sense. Anyway, um, so yeah, it's just another, uh, I guess, drop in the bucket of Steve Novak saying, I'm going to be here, cl- or I wouldn't be signing with the team close. But to tackle the uh, second part of the question, I don't know. I would probably lean towards that they just bring in Novak and kind of uh, wait to fill that last roster spot. I feel like they, mid-season, I mean, from what, there's still a small pool of guys available, and there has been really many teams linked to them you know, teams, I'm talking about guys like Lance Stevenson, Kevin Martin. It's not my way of saying I want these guys as bucks, but I'm just saying, you know, there's guys that are still available that I feel like nothing's really going to change until the season starts or training camp starts at least. Uh, whether that's the right thing or not, I'm not going to say because I think, I don't know. Anyway, um, but I would probably lean towards them opening, keeping that roster spot, last roster spot open, maybe for a training camp invitee, bring some guy in midseason. I want to say two years ago they did have an open roster spot. Oh, no, they didn't. They had a full team. Never mind. Um, but yeah, I would say I think they keep that open and then kind of keep their options. Or so they have their options close to them instead of, you know, if they are interested in someone, they cut a guy or, you know, anything like that. I mean, if Novak was not the age he is and was more mobile so that he could realistically play some three as well as some four, 
you could probably sign him and leave an open roster spot. But I think where Novak is at at his career, he's got to be a stretch four. There's not really any movement in either direction in terms of position for him. And with the Bucks having having no options at small forward behind Giannis, I don't think they can afford to leave a roster spot open. They might leave it open till training camp, but then preseason and training camp has to be seen as an audition for someone. It's hard, though, when you think of that to see guys. I mean, Kevin Martin is an obvious one, but he's still more of a two than a three. At this point, I was in favor of this, I want to say, a year ago. Went off the idea since. But you mentioned Lance Stevenson there. You're shaking your head. Not on a minimum when you've no small forward depth. No. You, so you wouldn't just offer a minimum C? I mean, minimum in this cap. No. Fair enough. I mean, I, I personally, I'd prefer Tayshaun Prince to him. But I wouldn't have a big issue if they got Lance Stevenson on a minimum contract. <sighs> I'm just I'm just looking at options. I mean, I'd like Tayshaun Prince. Um, I wouldn't mind turn pet away and maybe that's something if they had a roster spot i want to say he actually signed with the team oh no really burst my bubble like that yeah well good good for him i mean to yeah i've got a deal but hmm i'm not sure oh you're right a few days ago signed in italy you got it I like. I if I'm honest, straight off, I don't know why the books didn't sign him sooner, because it's we're now quite a while in this situation where we knew they weren't going to have any real options to fill that with depth, and I guess there's no no point in us beating around the bush any longer. We might as well just sort of jump into the other part, something we talked about a lot in our mailbag last week. And it, that is, of course, Ray Allen. And if anything, the noise behind that is strengthening. Um, Steve Novak wasn't the only person to make a 105.7 FM, the fan radio appearance this week. Peter Fagan did likewise. And he went and he spoke about Ray Allen. Which I feel is sort of weird. No, I don't mean that to be funny. I just... He's like the team president to pass comment on a guy who isn't on the roster. You can sort of vaguely do it. I suppose that's what he did. I don't know. I just felt it was a... If John Hammond is on speaking to, to them or any other show, which often happens, I understand that maybe a little bit more, but I just found that a little unusual. Um, what he did say when I asked for Ray Allen, he said, Ray Allen lights everybody up. 
Ray Allen is someone who gives this entire organization a shot in the arm. When he was later asked then on the possibility of him coming in on a cheap enough deal, he said, boy, that's a good question. I think Ray Allen would like to be a Booker or Celtic. I think we're just kind of starting that conversation. I think Ray Allen is in surprisingly good shape. He's been talking to John Hammond. I'm not a fan of this. I think I think we said this last week. There are definitely there are good aspects to Ray Allen coming back. Um but a lot of them get negated if Novak is also going to be signed. If you sign Novak and Ray Allen, you're signing two guys who I'm not sure how much of anything they have left between them. And you still have no small forward depth. It's pretty dicey business. How do you feel on Ray Allen if Novak comes back? Are we at, I don't see, if they had another small forward, I'd say, look, this doesn't really matter. You're looking at the end of the rotation. But they don't, so. Um, if Novak comes back, is that what you said? Yeah. And they then also look to bring Ray Allen back. Oh, man. I like, I don't know, I try not to be nostalgic. Well, never mind. What am I saying? I do. Uh, (laughs) I I don't know. I I think if you, I do kind of agree that if you're planning on bringing in Novak and Ray Allen, and there is a glaring weakness, I would say. It may not be as obvious to others, but I feel like it is a glaring weakness uh, at small forward. I don't know. I, I'm not sure that's that is what you want. Obviously, there, there are great factors that come in if you get in both guys. Both guys are really good you know, teammates, good locker room guys, all that stuff that you need around a young burgeoning core. Um, but can you really rely? I mean, th- that's the thing too, it's not even just the weak, you know, weakness and small forward. It's not even just the guys or what they have left in the tank, theoretically, is that you guys, you'd be relying on two guys that may not be I don't want to say NBA players in that term, but I don't know. It's borderline. And you already have a guy, or you know, a, a shooting guard like Rashad Vaughn that's clearly struggled that I don't think really anybody has a very high opinion of at this point about his NBA career. At this point, I should say, not for the future. Um, and then Brogdon's a rookie who you're going to have to rely on in that case as well. And Thon's a rookie too. I mean And that's we talk so much about how if they want to get the best out of Thon, they have to give him zero expectations and sort of shield him where possible this year. 
bringing in Novak and Ray Allen, that doesn't do that. It's very, very difficult. I honestly feel this is the way they'll go. I can't, I can't see what the plan is otherwise at the moment because I feel they would have acted sooner. And clearly, there are things that have gone on in the background that we probably don't even know about. Maybe never will. That's a given, really, with most teams and most summers. But there's obviously been attempts at moves. Greg Monroe being one to the forefront, but the delay in getting other stuff done, the delay in. Not just Plumlee signing his deal, which was actually a shorter delay than we expected, but the delay in them making the offer to him, because if they were going to just make him the offer anyway, they weren't waiting for anyone else to to make an offer and look to match. Why not offer it at one minute past midnight on day one? Mm-hmm. That, was a, that was an unusual move i think when you put it in that context and we didn't fully talk about that so they clearly they waited long enough to offer that which means there was other things explored and they were keeping the flexibility at that point right now i just don't see what's left i really don't um best guys from europe will have been signed best guys from the d league in droves really have gone to Europe or China this summer and I think which says a lot about how much the D-League has come on that no longer are those teams sort of internationally willing to just let those guys sit it out in the D-League they want to go and pay them and have them on their teams mm-hmm. but with all of that I'm not sure I leaves the books I wouldn't be worried, as I said, if there was a real tree and possibly a real two slash tree. Because there is depth behind Middleton, but being Vaughn slash Brogdon, I don't know. I like that makes me think we will probably see and have to see some second unit minutes that involve MCW and Delhi. Yeah. Or even or NS. Yeah. NS plus one of those. Like there'll have to be two point guard lineups just to cover over the cracks really in the depth while while others develop. Scary stuff. I don't know. It's something so minor that like I mean all it takes is an injury. What if Chris Middleton gets injured? Not a long, not not talking about what if his season is ended by injury. What if Chris Middleton misses two weeks? Not only does that destroy the books' shooting guard options, they are so depleted at small forward. And in that sort of scenario, I think you'd you'd probably see Jabari having to play some tree or even. Mertz are having to play some trade. They just have to bring power forwards down to fill out that position. So you don't want to be in that spot where it's if that one guy gets injured, you don't have options, and that's where the books are. Yeah. I definitely agree. 
Okay. That was pretty grim. But we can always make it more grim. So let's do that. This is something that, I don't know, I guess interests me as not nearly just a hypothetical debate, but it's probably really a philosophical one too. And maybe as an outsider and someone who hasn't been a books fan for years, I don't quite get this. So I want to talk about my good friend Jordan. There was some interesting stuff on Twitter, those of you who are on Twitter, which is probably a big chunk of our listenership, um, will have probably seen a few times really in the last few weeks, different kinds of debate flare up around the books, and probably more specifically than anyone else, Yanis. And when that happens, I generally sort of fades out to a lot of the, the major talking points when people get involved because we do so much analysis, micro-analysis of every detail of the books. When people who, I guess, don't watch the books as often or anything jump in, I'll be curious, but it doesn't take much for me to sort of say, okay, I can phase out now, if that makes sense. But I've noticed increasingly just how angry the response is from books fans. Not if anyone criticizes Yanis, because I don't feel like anyone really criticizes him. Like the biggest criticism I've seen would be to suggest that he's already very good and there's no reason to suggest he's going to get better than he is now. Which what he is now is very good. So really, if anyone says anything other than Yanis is going to be a superstar. The reaction among books fans, or at least those on Twitter, seems to get a little bit testy. What are your feelings on that? Why do you think that books fans or the books community are so protective? Maybe of Yanis specifically, because obviously we've had multiple jabari related question marks in the past and when he wasn't playing so well he would get he not not generally as much as from books fans in that case but what is it about yanis that books fans just i don't know they would they take very very personally is it just purely that he seems like the great hope to turn things around uh, I think a lot of it is involved with that. Um, I mean, when you think about it, Bucks have never really had a, a player of capable of what he is capable for a very long time. And even Kareem, Kareem is the only like transcendent talent. Exactly, and there's even I mean. That isn't even like the cleanest comparison because as accomplished as Kareem was right out of the gate, there are things that Giannis does that Kareem, maybe because of his position and all that stuff, that plays into it too. But there are things that Giannis does that Kareem was never asked to do or did in his career. Plus, you know I mean? plus I think that 
Kareem as as great as Kareem was and one of the all-time greats, definitely top ten and many people's top five, Kareem was sort of a natural evolution of Wilt. Yes. Or if you take elements of Wilt and Bill Russell, guys like that of his era, he was very much it wasn't that nobody had seen anyone like Kareem before. Maybe some maybe there was a valid argument to say they hadn't seen anyone as good as Kareem. But what he did was a known commodity, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I, that's definitely played into too. Um, I do also think a lot of it is there's like three things. So that's one. The other thing I think too, like you mentioned, is you know he was the first pick, or you the first move of the current iteration of the Bucks, really. Because before the Jennings trade, so Middleton wasn't even in, uh, you know, considered. Jabari was just entering college, or about to enter college. So he was like the first, like, or actually Henson was. So that ruins that. But, but anyway. what I wanted to say to that was, he wasn't because he happened by accident. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, even no if, even if they if they loved his talent so much. For him to be there at that spot, I mean, going into that draft, they could never have banked on the 15th pick being the first piece of the rebuild. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Jabari was the first, I suppose you could call trading Jennings away because that was a very conscious move of moving away from what was and you're getting younger, getting two good young players back for one who maybe you felt you'd seen everything you could from, which has proven to be true that could be seen as the first real move. But I I do, I think you're right. People reach for Yanis to be that, but it's more a happy coincidence that he was, or in hindsight, he's the first move where he wasn't really at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I think that comes into it and the fact that, uh, you know, I, we've talked about many times before that, the kind of middling to disappointing to god awful years of the Bucks, where they thought they had what they wanted, or we could get them back to being a competitive team, um, and all that, and it didn't really work out so well. There were some bad breaks where they didn't gel like they originally thought it would be. So I think that plays into it. And then I think the other big one. This would be the biggest one, really. Is just the fact that he comes from the journey that he has taken. He's, you know, this kind of, yeah, obviously his history is, you know, being from, you know, being really poor in Greece and just finding this outlet like basketball that, you know, kind of catapulted him to being like an unknown, then all of a sudden being drafted. And his just his whole story of, you know, being, or being part of a family coming from where they were, all that stuff. I think that certainly plays into it. And the fact that, you know, being a very impressionable kid, even that still stands to this day, I think that plays into it too. You know, there's just a lot of things. I think the fact that he wants to be here too, obviously we've talked about many times envisioning to be here, you know, for the rest of his career. That's, I know those are all little, We've heard so many athletes say that. Okay, sorry, sorry to crush, but I agree with all of that. But yeah. and today, pressingly of all days, 
Jabari Parker wrote his piece for Players Tribune. And okay, Chicago is nowhere near as exotic as coming from Greece by way of Nigerian parents. But you could say similar things in terms of coming from a background of poverty, really. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, maybe Jabari's upbringing was a little bit more dangerous. I think something important that Jabari wrote in that piece, and if, if you haven't read it, go read it because it's incredible. And particularly if it's, it's not about basketball, it's about, I guess, one of sort of many issues that's not just, I guess, relevant nationwide, but in the Midwest in particular, we don't need to put any further emphasis on that, particularly at the moment. But Jabari's this incredibly well-rounded. Once again, if you want to use impressionable, maybe he's a little bit more forceful. Um, he's more confident. For example, Yanis does his blogs, <laughs> but you could never see him coming out with anything quite as hard-hitting as what Jabari just wrote. If maybe it's an innocence that plays into Yanis, but I still I just don't see exactly what it is. I'm gonna write a piece by the time this post will probably be out. But I got thinking last night while I was watching the 100 meters finals, and when I was watching it here, um, I was watching the UK broadcaster BBC. And Michael Johnson is part of their coverage. So having just seen his long-standing 400 meters record be broken, whatever, he was talking about Bolt. And he starts to talk about Bolt just in terms of Bolt, the phenomenon, and looking at the bigger picture of it. And it felt so familiar to me. It really reminded me of Yanis he started to talk about just how unique this guy was and how it is size uh, for a sprinter at six, six as bolt is generally some of that size can't get out and start. And it takes them too long to get into their stride that really it's 120 meters or 140 meters. by the time they're able to catch the guys who are smaller and have just basically an aerodynamic advantage to start with. And, he talked about in the time since how so many people have said, oh, I've got this six foot six inch sprinter. But it's just not the same. And there's just something so unique and so special. And it comes along every now and then. And no one has an answer for it. It's not something that analytics can point to. It's not something that history can point to other examples of. It's just different. And that to me drew... I don't know, just it sort of triggered thoughts of Yanis for me. And obviously comparing Yanis to Usain Bolt is insane. That's not what I'm getting at. Because you're looking at someone who is comfortably one of the greatest athletes of all time. But in thinking about this whole question of why he's viewed the way he is, or why are people so protective? Like I, I don't feel there's anything to gain from not acknowledging Yanis' flaws at where he's at right now, or in putting him up on such a pedestal that 
we already say he's guaranteed to be this because we don't know what could happen. There could be bumps in the road. It's just not that guaranteed. Jabari could be the better player. He could be the better player in the space of a year, 18 months. Who knows? But for me, it just comes back to this same sort of thing that makes someone like Bolt fascinating. And that it's just, it's someone so different. And maybe that goes back to where he, the books have never had someone like this is he doesn't have Kareem's talent to begin with. You're not looking at his bona fide all-time great straight off the bat. But he has the potential to be that. And the reason he has the potential to be that is because he can do things that we haven't really seen before. I mean, that that's the only that's the only place I can get to in my head on it. And I don't I don't know. It just the the whole debate around that fascinates me because I know there's going to be lows. There's going to be it's a guarantee. So there's always a chance that it just doesn't pan out as everyone thought. And that's not a reflection of how much ability he has now or whatever. That can just happen. Things can happen. Something can happen in his life that changes him as a person. Something can happen on the court. He could get injured, whatever. These are all things no one wants to think about, but they're all possible. And it's from that that I just don't know why it's... It's sacrilegious to suggest that he could stagnate in any sort of way. And to give an example of this, it's not something I do often, is in give an example of comments or replies till we get to things, because we get a lot of pretty funky comments and replies. Uh, but we had an article on this. I want to say it was John Heffernan few weeks back just on Yanis his development and areas where maybe he might struggle or things that he has to work on things that he has to figure out things that could hold him back and the idea that John put out there was basically what if he stops improving purely hypothetical John didn't believe it I didn't believe it. I don't think anyone on our site believes that. But just as a hypothetical question, what if he stops improving? And the response is very much things like, he's 21. Um, <laughs> lots of things I won't repeat, but we'll just say improbable scenarios that people felt were, were more likely than Yanis stopping improving or not becoming this great, great player. And as an outsider to the whole books fandom, gradually working my way to being an insider, I just find this bizarre because there aren't many franchises in the league who have been burned so many times and that should just know better not to not to be optimistic. <laughs> but already at this point, it's sort of running away and I, I get that that's a natural part of being a fan and I just I just worry that's the sort of expectation that translates to the court and if there is a rough patch and if we're being really honest about it he's probably been set up for 
a slightly rough patch because he's going to continue to have this responsibility of handling the ball. Teams are going to start game planning for that, Yanis. Last year, it was a surprise. It was mid-season. Teams are going to start working towards it. 100% it's true to say he has such a blend of like freakish length and athleticism that, you know, it still isn't that easy to game plan for. But at the same time, coaches are good. This is it's why they do what they do. NBA coaches are the best in the world. And they will figure out what the best way to limit his impact is. And at the end of the day, it will just come down to how big of an impact he can make when opposing teams are curtailing him. And like the answer to all those questions is we don't know yet. This year will probably go a long way towards finding out, but we don't know. And I have ex- every expectation that he'll be great. Will he be one of the all-time greats to play the game? Yeah, I, I just don't see how we could say that. I just don't. That how can that factor in before someone is like, before someone has been to an all-star game? Before someone has made an all NBA team, we're not talking about someone who is yet the best, one of the best players in their league on the right path to definitely. But before that happens, how can we talk like that? Who does that benefit bar fantasy bar just running away and saying, Oh, this is how great the books are going to be. Where in reality, if they are working on a Ray Allen, Steve Novak tandem covering across the backup small forwards, but I mean, I don't know how great Yanis has to be for the books to be good. I mean, that's that's just such a stupid little, but a classic example of how there's so much more to all of this. And I don't know. I'm just, I amused is maybe the politest way of putting it by how taken in by the whole thing people are. I understand how great he is, but every week when we do this, Jordan, I sit down and I see the pain in your eyes, the pain of being a books fan for many years. <laughs> and I just don't know why, why there's not a little bit more caution. I mean, you're a, you're a cautious person, Jordan. Oh yeah. Every sense of every every sentence, every word that comes out of your mouth is overthought. To what, how do you, when you look at Giannis? So obviously you've got <laughs> naturally these feelings of excitement of what he is now, what he could be. But at what point for you does that cap off? That you go, okay, well we don't need to worry about any of that other stuff until he reaches this stage. Because there's still forks in the road, no matter what he is now, no matter what he could be. Well, I think that's the really interesting question about this, because Giannis, and I should have said this earlier, because I think this also plays a factor of maybe inflating everybody's opinion about Giannis or kind of setting in stone with this all-time great or all-time bucks, superstar, all-star, any any of those terms we throw at him, is that seeing from him or seeing him go from a guy that they, was this project 
really didn't know what he was going to you know, be. Then seeing over time, more opportunities, he, you know, playing fine, but he wasn't really part of the team. He kind of felt like an on island. I mean, that's not just an analogy, but they used, they put him in the corner of like an, on an island. Um, it kind of just letting the game come to him and all that stuff, you know, picking the right areas to choose from. To then his sophomore year, where comes off the bench to start the season. Everybody was kind of not really focusing on Jabari, but it was kind of like 1A, 1B. And then all of a sudden, you know, obviously Jabari goes down, so you kind of focus more on Giannis. And, but his play, even before Jabari's injury, there was still something more there. There was something that, like, oh, this, this is a pleasant surprise. He's, you know, making impact plays. He's still still kind of finding spots where he could operate. I mean, there's one game in particular that I distinctly remember because I not to brag, but it was at this game. It was against the Memphis Grizzlies, one of the first games of the season where Giannis basically, it was like a crunch side game. It was pretty much an ugly game. I think the final score was like 94-93. But Giannis was like the one that they relied to. Jabari was on the bench most really interesting to me. But Giannis, it was like, you know, as time is going down in the fourth quarter, Bucks are down by like six or seven, some somewhere in between kind of there. And they kept going to this play where Giannis would just, you know, take either Marcus Saul or primarily uh, Zach Randolph and do his Giannis kind of like go at him, do a spin move or do a little bit like a hesitation move. Do his long steps and you know convert a layup, and Bucks ended up winning that game. And I just kept thinking like, oh, this—that's where they could use him, kind of this, you know, this guy that he—he he was making an impact with the game where he actually had the ball in his hands. It wasn't like this kind of like tip dunk or you know getting a rebound, like giving up and kind of thing. Like that was a play that they let him run, kind of thing. And then over time, we saw that during that season. I mean, we could think of like. Games I want to say against the Pelicans or these games where he would just kind of like break out of nowhere. Then it wouldn't be followed. He would follow it up with a nice game, but it wasn't. It didn't have that kind of effect. Uh, I was you know against the Grizzlies or Pelicans, high scoring all that stuff. And then we see last year where you know the Wizards game or you know distinctly you know coming out and just you know. Going from that point where he was doing those same types of things, but it still felt disconnected from what the from what the Bucks are trying to do, to where they figured it out or not figured it out, but they decided midway through the season to put everything together, let Giannis run the team, and have everything connect in a way where he's making an impact. It's not just him one on one or anything like that. It's him letting the gate or you know running the game not letting the game come to him kind of thing and i think that is what has kind of not clawed people's judgment but i feel like it's one of those things where you've seen this natural progression of Giannis's game that people think oh the, because he's still climbing this mountain towards stardom or whatever it's going to keep going there's still it can reach incredible heights i mean we're pretty high up uh, this fake mountain I just constructed. But, uh, you know, seeing that progression, and to be honest, 
it's been a long time since the Bucks even had that. Even though like a guy like Andrew Bogut, really accomplished player, it was in a different sense. And the context of the team was totally different. Even Michael Red, as good as he was, and you know, being growing up during that time, Michael Red, it was it, it's not to that effect in my mind. Where Giannis, you see this, you know, ascension, and I feel like that kind of Again, not cloud people's judgment, but I feel like that just because he's keep going on this, you know, ladder, climbing this mountain towards stardom or anything, that I feel like people think that he still has many or you know levels to, or <laughs> I keep trying to make this analogy work, but scaling the mountain even further. Where I mean, maybe this is the summit. I don't know. I, I really don't know. I, I don't. I don't try to cap. Or, or see, like, I'll put a limit on what he could do because I still think there is room for him to grow. But personally, and to go back to my cautious Bucks fandom, I feel like even if Giannis was, this is fully formed Giannis. Maybe that, to some people, that means this really capable facilitator, all around player. Uh, kind of thing, except for shooting. Um, I feel like that is that is very good. I, that, does that? I don't know if that makes him an all star, but I still think that is very good. A guy that could make a high impact. Um, that could also be like, well, there are still if he doesn't have this. I mean, I've seen it endlessly from people that written on it and stuff like that, and it makes sense that if. If, if he has a jump shot and all that stuff, or hearing John McLaughlin say, like, once he develops that jumper, you better watch out or something like that kind of thing. And it's like, I don't know if that really matters. It does matter in in what he can do in a game, because obviously you can game plan against that, you know, putting him, teams will sag off. We saw that all the, you know, throughout this year. But putting the ball in his hands, I feel like that is the best way for him to operate. That doesn't. I'm not saying that doesn't make him an all-star or anything like that. But where Giannis is at, where he doesn't have a jump shot, a very reliable one at all, really, it's still pretty good. Like, that's what's kind of crazy when people talk about this or even pairing him with Andrew Wiggins and stuff like that that that's, I've, we've seen a lot lately. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, to go back to your question, I, I don't know. I'm not really confident that he's going to be the superstar. I, I may, I'm may. i a little more confident he's going to be an all-star just because he is so unique, and I think I don't think he's going to be averaging triple doubles or anything like this that we saw on a regular basis last year. But I still think it's going to be pretty – not pretty close, but I think it's going to be in that ballpark, really, that I think – to kind of get to that point where he's doing that on a full season where teams will be game playing against them because that certainly came into effect last year. I still think that's still really good. If Giannis is a 15-7-5 guy or adding a couple of points or adding a couple of assists or whatever, actually adding a few more assists, um, but kind of stuff like that, I still think that's really good for him and the Bucks and everything involved and even the other players are, that are still growing, like Jabari or even whatever Thon ends up to be, whatever Malcolm ends up, or Brogdon ends, ends up to be or something like that, you know, any 
any guy on the Bucks roster, you don't really know. But I think that's still really good for the team where they want to be in general. The whole Giannis needing a shot thing is more a reflection of the books than it is of Giannis. Because if the books had four guys who could shoot, we wouldn't talk about this. And in that way, I think it's a weird thing that if he actually did develop the shot, what does it achieve? If he's a 40% shooter, that's great. Obviously, you get the full advantages of that. But considering how unique he is as a player, I mean, are you really going to want him to be taking jump shots over driving to the rim or dishing teammates? Obviously, there's a level he can get to where then you say, okay, well, he's just so good at that, he can do whatever he wants. And then it really is game over. But that's just sort of a weird thing that the books need him to make jump shots because Jabari can't really shoot either. MCW, and he was, or if he still is a part of the major plan, he can't shoot. If that's flipped around, if MCW and Jabari can shoot, no one says... When Yanis gets the jumper, he's unstoppable. It would just be, you keep doing what you're doing. And where I think that's interesting is, you mentioned how early in the season, that Wizards game, um, where he really went off. And early season, Yanis was forgotten, where he wasn't the facilitator, really, but he was scoring for fun. Yes. And in that time, you're right, it did look like the team and him were on two different tracks altogether. It wasn't it wasn't one coherent plan. I think it's a little presumptive though to think that the best option for the books to win will always be for Yanis to be who everything runs through. And once again, like the shot, I think that that's a byproduct of where the books were. If Michael Carter-Williams had been what the books taught Michael Carter-Williams could be, there wouldn't be the push for Giannis to run everything. And when I say that, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in point Giannis. I think it should be successful for him. It should be successful for the books. Is that the best use of him in his career, though? I'm not 100% sure, and the reality is that's something we might never actually know, um, because if he is good at it and continues to go like it did in the second half of last season, well, that's probably what we'll see him do for the rest of his career. But if he had a great point guard with him, and he that was an element of his game, but he wasn't tasked with every time up the floor sort of initiating the offense and with that level of responsibility. Maybe that'd be better for him. And then again, maybe there's a point where, I don't know, through whatever series of moves, the books get a point guard like that. Or Jabari reaches a level where you've got to tailor it more towards him and that might still be Yanis initiating, but you're taking sort of the flair or the creativity or the vision, a lot of the things that make up Yanis, the the passer you, you take that away and it's more just about okay well we need to get Jabari the ball in this part of the floor because when he gets it there he's going to score and 
the injury has obviously played a big part in this. I guess the the struggles just after coming back from it and the continuous problems with defense more than anything temper people's expectations for Jabari. Personally, I don't think I've talked about this much. I haven't written about it yet, but I will do at some stage in the next few months. I've got a really strong feeling that Jabari's going to break out this year. I feel very confident that we'll see a very different Jabari Parker. And then it becomes less about Yanis and it becomes more about Jabari and Yanis, the two of them together, which I think is probably the best way forward. We talk about the big tree so often, but really that's a very a very strongly defined class system within that big tree. <laughs> it's, it's not sort of a level playing field when people talk about it like that. And I think that's important for the books if it was this sort of idealistic sort of even responsibility big tree i think the guys are sort of capable of that where they share responsibility okay Yanis might have more of the ball because that fits his strengths but definitely going into next season i think that they're going to look to play true Yanis more than anything longer term does that mean the best strategy is to play true Yanis? Maybe not. Does it mean that someone else, possibly even Tom Maker, we don't, let's say he hits the potential that people talk about having for him, that then he doesn't deserve the bigger opportunity that in whatever way results. I mean, it just, it feels so premature. This is a team who, to say this team has made one playoffs would be a bit rich because it wasn't this team. Yanis has made one playoffs. Middleton has. Henson. MCW. Plumley. Plumley and Ennis, technically, even though I'm not sure they saw the court at all. <laughs> um, well, in the blog game, they did. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> you or I could have got on the floor in the blowout game and no one would have known any different. I just think there's such a long way to go and we haven't seen him or this team do anything yet. Barr put up really impressive numbers to give us hope for the future. And it's great hope. And to come to my personal opinion on it, I feel he will be an outstanding player. And yeah, maybe he might hit all of the expectations the Bucks fans have for him. I just don't know why it's that or nothing. Particularly when this team has plenty of other options. Whether that's with the players they have now or in packaging together players they have now and moving them for someone else later on. Like you just don't know what's going to come up and what way this team will play out. I just don't know why it's so black and white and why anything that isn't entirely positive that even just has debate which is sort of healthy to do to talk about the players that you're going to watch every night of the season. Let's be honest. Bucks fans know Giannis' strengths and weaknesses better than anyone. So why not acknowledge them or talk about what could happen, what way the team could go? I think it's healthier all around. It's better for everyone. It's better so that the expectations don't lead to Bucks fans being disappointed sooner or that they don't weigh too heavy on Giannis. 
and maybe there's just a protective nature as well because this is the first guy in a while who's probably deserving of national attention. When you talk in about good way. in a good way, yeah, yeah, in a good way, that's fair. <laughs> but even those other guys, I mean, that's not regular. That's not regular national attention. That's only when things go wrong in the big way. Yeah. Um, I don't know the last player the books had who was as worthy of discussion on a national sense. Because I don't even think Bogut wouldn't draw discussion at this level. Michael Red certainly wouldn't have. Jennings, it was close. Very, very was, briefly. Yeah, it was mostly his hot start. Um, but to kind of, you know, put my or a full circle on this, and I think it brings up an interesting point about the Bucks offseason. Um, I, I think, and this is something that I probably will eventually come to writing about, that I think that's the bet that the, the Bucks are making. It's about what they what they have discovered now about Giannis, about Jabari, about how their team is constructed and bringing the guys that they brought in or re-signing Plumlee, uh, you know, these kind of guys. Or the bulk of what the, the Bucks offseason has been about is discovering what works for them now. And I find that interesting because, like you said, like that can we followed if you follow the NBA in the last or even just following the NBA, things change very quickly. I mean, the example that I like to bring up is just, you know, seeing the Pacers, a Pacers team that was contending for a Eastern Conference title. And think looking at those high impact players, you know, like Paul George is obviously a all-star, he's a superstar level, he's an Olympian. David West, obviously, is a very good veteran player. Lance Stevenson was a productive player <laughs> at that time. But, like, the biggest example of that Pacers team putting it all together, I think, at their, at their peak was, you know, a guy like Roy Hibbert, who was this really good defensive player. He was an all-star, if you can remember that. And just a really good, highly competent or, you know, highly skilled defensive player blocked a lot of shots, all that stuff, kind of was the linchpin to their defense. And now, you know, he's barely – I mean, this is not a reflection of what I'm saying, like, could happen to the Bucks, but it's just things change quickly. A guy like Roy Hibbert that was a really, you know, one of the best big men in the NBA, not even just three years ago now at this time, he's scrounging to – you know, he's fighting to stay in the NBA. One-year like deal. That. He's like... Yeah, that's one-year deal. But – I don't think you need to do that, and maybe it's easier for me, once again, not being a Bucks fan, but you can look much closer to home. Because when opening night rolls around, let's say Delvadova and Plumlee are your starting point guard and center. If two years ago you had told any Bucks fan at the time when I guess first choices at point guard and center would have been Brandon Knight and Larry Sanders. <laughs> two years ago, we're not even at the two-year point yet. Um, so less than two years ago, right now, that they'd be Brandon Knight and Larry Sanders. That a year later you would have pivoted to Michael Carter Williams and Greg Monroe. And Chris Coleman. And then the following year that 
you could be looking at Matthew Vervadova and Miles Plumley. That's the example of just how quickly it changes. And it's what they think now. I mean, they made the decisions to bring in Delhi and Toledovic and bring back Plumley based on what seems best for Yanis and Jabari and Middleton now. And they're really only two years into all of them less because of Jabari's injury together. So what they think is best for them now might not actually be what's best for them. And there's nothing to suggest that all of that won't change in a hurry. I'm not saying straight away, but in relative terms, he was saying a couple of years, that couldn't be very different again. I think if you look at the change, the Bucks roster has gone through and the good moves and the missteps, everything that's been there just in the past two years, it's incredible. And it's the best example. Yanis has been there throughout all of that. Yanis was... Two years ago, that would have been his second season, right? Mm-hmm. So he was already... He had impressed as a rookie, and pretty soon... I know he started on the bench in that second season, but pretty early on, it had become clear that, okay, this could be one of our core players for years to come. So he's improved, he's advanced in that time, but you're looking at a time frame where he was still a big part of what was to come and look at how much it's changed. Who says it doesn't happen again? Who says that Yanis and Jabari don't go out and both have season-ending injuries within two weeks of the season and the Bucks end up with the number one overall pick next year pick someone who's even better and changes the franchise. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't want it to happen. But these are the sort of things that can happen. And you just don't know. You don't know what way the franchise is going to go. So to really project way out and to get sensitive over people saying, well, maybe he is as good as he is now. Or maybe he's not going to thrive as a point forward. I mean, they're all fair at the moment because he has to prove otherwise. If he continues to develop into next season, if he continues to be really successful with the ball in his hands, that's when you can start to dismiss that. You can say, he's been doing it since this time last year. Look how good he is. He's only about to enter his fourth year. He hasn't even signed his second contract yet. Mm-hmm. Everyone needs to chill out. If he's good as he looks to be, as we all hope he is, there's no need to worry about what anyone else thinks because Giannis, the books, and ultimately books fans will be the ones to have the last laugh. So I don't expect it to happen, but I feel like more reasonable expectations wouldn't do anyone any harm. Things can change. The future is incredibly bright for Yanis. He could be the best player ever to play basketball. But to just sort of work off that as predetermined right now is completely ridiculous. Live in the gray area. It's very comfortable. I personally enjoy it. It's not the smoothest, but I'm going to use it as a hashtag anyway. Um, Hashtag live in the gray area. (laughs) Moving on. 
Hope that wasn't too doom and gloom. Don't think it was. It wasn't meant to be. It's just discussion. That's the whole point in this. Not everything mentioning Yana's name that isn't about how great he's going to be is necessarily a bad thing. The schedule for the next NBA season was released this week. As expected, the books will play 82 games. 41 at home, 41 away. My reaction to it has been that it is rather kind to the books. And we've been burnt by this one before. Um, last season is um, one example where they didn't have the toughest schedule to start, but things went horribly, horribly wrong. But this is one where if the books could hit the ground running, there's some real potential for them to get out there and sort of throw down a marker and from that point on if you're a little bit ahead of play maybe it is easier for them to, to make the playoffs again get back there overall what was your impression of the schedule anything that stood out to you in particular uh, yeah, I mean it's the schedule. I feel like last year, I don't know why, but I'm just feeling like considering like the summer and seeing like Monroe, you know, Sonny Monroe, there was just this like palpable excitement for the schedule. For me, at least personally, last year. Um, and then this year I was like, oh yeah, it's nice. It's nice to have the schedule. <laughs> I don't know. I know I'm like just crappy at all of this. Um, but uh, I'm gonna stop you talking now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come in because I got some real thoughts. Real, okay. some real schedule talk. <laughs> um, without getting too much into the, well, this part of the schedule looks really nice. So if they start well, they could do this. In terms of just facts, um. I find it striking that they don't have any real long homestand. That jumped out to me. I know last year, I want to say there was a six-game homestand. Maybe it was longer. Uh, I want to say just after Christmas, maybe into January last year. That sounds... Mm. Well, they definitely, they definitely had a longer homestand. Or a long homestand, I should say. Well, this year... The longest homestand is not that long. <laughs> it is four games long, um, early December. On the flip side of that coin, not unusual. Um, the longest road trip is six games, and it's sort of an annual thing. They did it last year, pretty close to the same, but six games when the books will go out west. And no matter how good or bad the season is going, that will definitely be a stretch that will decide how everything pans out in the end. Because, I mean, teams like the Grizzlies, Clippers, Trailblazers, and the Warriors obviously are all better than the books right now. So that's four games that'd be hard pushed to win. 
And as we saw last year, the Lakers in that sort of road trip doesn't become a gimme. The Kings, likewise, that's a real challenge when you're going out West Coast and you're there for the best part of 10 or 11 days. That's pretty grueling, and it doesn't get easier when you're playing really high-caliber competition. Um, so there, there too, are always important, just home, home and away in terms of the length of sort of longest homestand, longest road trip. I would have liked a longer homestand than four games. It's nice to be able to look at the schedule and go, oh, you know what? We've got the next six games at home. That's sort of where you can build some momentum and get things going. Um, it's broken up a little bit otherwise. There's some weird quirks. I mean, the not playing the Bulls until mid-December and then playing them on a back-to-back and then playing them again two weeks later. Feels like overkill. I don't know if I need to see that much Rajon Rondo, Dwayne Wade backcourt in such a condensed period of time. I don't think Bulls fans. <laughs> it's true. Like that either. And that that stretch in the schedules, he's the books go back to back against the Bulls, and then the next two games are back to back against the Cavs, <laughs> and then the next two games are back to back against the Wizards. All one home, one away in all three cases. Uh, and first game home, second game away. Just a really sort of strange run-up to sort of the Christmas period we'll have. I feel um, like a lot of Drake jokes will be – his song back-to-back back back. played a lot. Well, can, they don't play the Raptors back-to-back, so that might help in that regard. Um, other than that I mean as I mentioned the opening seems pretty forgiving in as much as anything can when you don't know how good or bad opposing teams never mind the books will be um, I would say the same generally for the run in doesn't exactly strike fear into me um, you're looking we'll say from if you take it from a bit out Hornets, Celtics, Pistons Mavs, Thunder, Pacers Sixers, Hornets, Celtics. I mean, good teams, but not great teams. Celtics, obviously, being the best of them. I know. I know Jordan's in love with the Hornets, so he might fear games as the Hornets late in the season. But all in all, I think the schedule seems pretty kind to the books. And any analysis of it that I've seen in terms of strength of schedule and things like that, that anyone's put together, generally backs that up. It's not incredibly kind, but it's not that hard either. They're really middle of the road in terms of the way the schedule looks to have set up if we're basing it off of the way teams performed last year. Mm -hmm. Mailbag time. This is going to be a very condensed mailbag. And the reason why is because none of you bothered to send questions in. Same questions. At behind the books. 
We will call for mailbag questions multiple times every Monday. And if you won't remember that, or you're one of our non-Twitter listeners, winning6podcast at gmail.com. First question from at Delhi fan page. Is my boy at Matthew Delhi currently number one on the point guard depth chart? Could you see him start in a books jersey? Um, uh, we we both nearly went for that. Level of film. We were both going to have similar answers. You go first, Jordan. I could see him, and I would like to see him start. Uh, I, I'm assuming he means opening day, correct? See, my reading is currently being now. Oh, okay. I, I think if we're talking about right now, if Jason Kidd was sitting down tonight and he was thinking through his depth chart, maybe planning out, Kidd and Hammond sit down, plan things out, because they need to find a 15th man. A salad. No, they need, they need to find a 15th man. <laughs> and they work out the rotation. And I think if you're doing that right now, I don't think Daly is number one on the point guard depth chart. I think it's MCW spot into training camp. I think they'll give him that benefit of the doubt, and it's probably rightly so. Considering Delhi is new to the organization and coming in as someone who has been a backup at his former team. Whether by the time training camp is out, that is still the case, is a very different question. I wouldn't be surprised necessarily if even by the start of preseason or one of the first couple of games, Delhi was starting a point guard, but that doesn't necessarily mean that was the original plan all along. I think they're going to try MCW again. They've they've nothing to lose really in doing that, as much as people say, well, they'll lose games. It's not good for Yanis. It's not good for Jabari. Whatever way you want to spin it, they don't really have anything to lose. And with a decision to be made on his contract next summer, they've got to be sure and really take every kind of look at MCW that they can this year to decide whether they want to move on or keep him. I will agree with that. I think the comments that they made, the confidence, I think they still have in him. Um, they're still going to give him that opportunity. But again, if he's, if Delvadova starts or doesn't start, I don't think that's a big question. He's going to get a lot of minutes. That's, I think that's pretty certain. Um, but yeah, I still think it's FCW's spot to lose at this point. Yeah, and the, the comments that you mentioned, don't forget that around the time of the draft when all of a sudden MCW was the buzzword. <laughs> it was really quite bizarre, but um, all of a sudden they were talking about what he could be, how important he was, setting the, the tone defensively, things like this. So we've got to wait and see what happens. The next one from... At Alex underscore Koenig, 023. Should Miroslav Radulica be the book starting center next year? Oh. 
I, I want to clear up. I don't think that was like a, that wasn't a, oh God, sigh, this again from Jordan. That was, I, maybe we should censor it. That was a sigh of pleasure. That was censored. Jordan was, was excited about our prospect. I was bombed off. That trade ended up being uh, a positive trade, but I was immediately bummed when they traded him as part of the package to get Jared Dudley and the Clippers pick, which they later traded. Um, what's the? Do you say should or should should? As much as I love Miroslav and his Miroslavness, uh, I believe he's on a team. <laughs> but also, I, I just don't. He's not the type of guy that I don't think they they don't really need at this point. He's a different. He would be actually. I mean, I, I he would still be a good like second unit center, third center. But yeah. So really what you're saying is they should have got rid of Greg Monroe earlier in the summer, brought back Plumley, Hanson, and third string. You would have Miroslav. I would be happy with that. <laughs> I'd be very happy with that. I, I'd be happy with that too. I mean, most people would be happy with that. Next one. From at John John 5710 Best bango slash mascot stunt you've ever seen. Everybody knows bango's backflip dunk is legendary, but what are some others? Huh. Hmm. I want to say my, my, mine isn't a stunt as much as the most impressive thing for me with bango his shooting ability, particularly the the half court over the head. I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't think any other mascot makes that shot with the regularity that Bango does. I mean, he does it like a couple of times a season, and he generally goes pretty close every time. And even if it starts off. I mean, he takes his time. There's never any any sort of rush with that. And he makes adjustments as he goes along. And it gets closer and closer. And when he makes it, you'll find it's often like a buzzer beater to make it. So I've always found that particularly impressive. I mean, you can get lots of like dunk squad type of guys and put them in the costume. And they can do crazy athletic and acrobatic dunks. Can't just teach someone to shoot like that, particularly over their head. Yeah, Mango's got the and touch. In, and in a, in a in a suit. Yeah, costume. where I'm gonna take a guess and say, visibility isn't great. No, and gripping the ball like if I yeah, that's, that's true. I hadn't thought of that. Playing and you know shooting around in Wisconsin, obviously there's it's cold. So I shot a basketball with gloves on, and it it's terrible. It is, I hate it. I hate it. But the weather dictates uh, that sometimes. So I would actually, I would agree with that. I think that is. I not wonder. Necessarily a I wonder has he got like little sort of, like sort of rubber 
I don't know. I don't know if there's anything I could compare it to. A suction uh, cup? No, no. Th- there's for for Gaelic football here in Ireland, they they'd use gloves, okay? Yeah. But rather than like soccer, like goalkeepers' gloves or anything like that, these will be more sort of fabric based. They could even be like, they could be wool based. And they have like these sort of almost like sort of these rubber pimple effects thing all over them that acts as a sort of really natural grip. Huh. I wonder, does he have something like to to help him grip the ball. If not, I mean, all the more impressive. Yeah. We have to ask him, whoever, when he one day what will saying, be revealed. He, we don't know. Or she, I, yeah, I'm sorry. Mysterious Bango, I mean, we know nothing other than incredible shooter. Yeah. Uh, the last one from uh, David Dunn 21. I have a time machine and will trade you right now 2001 Big Dog at Sam Cassell for Jabari and MCW. Do you accept my offer? Oh, man. Wow. Um, I, I first thing I'll say is I think we should put the time machine to better use. No, <laughs> I mean Miroslav Jordan. Or, yeah, that might be that might be pressing. Even for for this current team, maybe we could just go back far enough to undo like the Vasquez trade, the Dudley and Zaza trades. Man. Monroe. Yeah, that one too. If we could just go back to the summer of 2015. Yeah. Just Copeland, just to save our... I mean, you well, do... But again, we wouldn't have that. We wouldn't have that vibe. I think you Copeland. learn something by all of that. Do, like, do, no, see, how to reach the bottom as fast as possible. No, but I don't know if you you realize that Plumley could actually be a good fit without bringing in Monroe and seeing what a bad fit looks like. I'm not justifying saying, oh, well, <laughs> 100 times out of 100, you do that deal because he, that was such a bad idea that things turned out well otherwise. But I do think there are certain things that probably worked because of how bad those deals were. We'll see longer term. The more you mention these, like, things not working out, there's a lot of... Well, obviously, you can... I mean, if you go over the last 15 years, you can name a lot of things that have worked out pretty much. But just in recent years, I mean, there's a, <laughs> there's so many, like, different things that I, I, my mind is racing with all the, if this hadn't happened, Oh, yeah, ex- alternate scenarios for the books. And we there's mentioned so one many last time like, if Larry Sanders is what you want Larry Sanders to be, the team that he came up on is so much better. This team could still be so much better, but this team wouldn't look like it does now because he was 
as good as you wanted him to be to begin with. Mm-hmm. And he's just one guy, let's be honest. As a whole. OJ Mayo not working out because Milton weaves his way. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, um, uh, and in that scenario, Brandon Jennings continues to be good enough to be the point guard, so you don't have to worry about Chris Middleton anyway. That's true. Ah, the timelines. Back to this timeline. Um, oh. See, the one thing is that you have a, a distinct advantage with going with Cassell. So I saw it. Uh, I want to. Which is Andrew Andy Bailey? We follow at Andy mm-hmm. Bailey. He tweeted out uh, all-time bucks box plus minus. Uh, yeah, box box plus minus. Samsell is number one. That just speaks highly of his fit uh, with the bucks. It's just how good of a player he was because he's underrated, really. Um, I feel I feel like this suggestion is loaded a little bit because <laughs> the person asking the question wants rid of MCW, so he's willing to go all time machine on it to do that. I I go with I stick with what I have because I think the most important part of this question is you it's it's tempting to go big dog and cassell because you know what they were yeah you know exactly what they could be in this team now because you know what their ability is you've got sort of a very finite view of who they are as players mm-hmm. or with jabari we don't know and he could be better than both to be better than glenn robinson considering after the same position that would be an ask in itself, but I mean, hey, don't know if you've ever noticed the whole big dog major cat. Oh, two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, having big dog and Sam Cassell is very tempting. That really is just an attempt to dispose of MCW. But I don't want to give up Jabari. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's, it's very tricky. I, like the books would be very, very good with Big Dog and Sam Cassell instead of those two right now. It's a tricky one. Well, it's one that H.G. Wells could have thought of. <laughs> oh God, time machine jokes. That's what you come here for. That is it. For this week's one six podcast i don't know what you're gonna do with all your free time this week that extra time we've afforded you by coming in under our regularly scheduled slot of your week but yeah enjoy it maybe i don't know come up with hashtags um contemplate Yanis in general, the whole big picture. Maybe start thinking on your mailbag questions for next week so we don't just have four questions. If you're disappointed that we've gone too short this week, you've only got yourself to blame. 
thanks very much for listening. <laughs> I wish it hadn't. <laughs> I, I've got to do the official wrap up. I mean, otherwise, I otherwise it would have been good. But thanks for listening. <laughs> Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us at SoundCloud, Addison Stitcher. Read all of our work at BehindTheBookPass.com. We will be back next week. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you.